Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I understand why Jonathan wears sunglasses now. Um, okay, here we go. In Lamentations chapter 4, <laughs> thanks. The author returns the perspective uh, to the perspective of the first two chapters. He is once again offering a corporate lament for the city of Jerusalem and her people. In a way, the poet seems tired. This is now the fourth poem lamenting the destruction and fall of the beautiful city of Jerusalem. And the poet has just poured himself out emotionally and personally in chapter 3. One scholar says chapter 4 conveys a sense of exhaustion and remoteness, as if the strong man of chapter 3 had brought sorrow and fury as far as they could go. In the opening 10 verses of Lamentations 4, the poet recounts some of the darkest moments of the famine that occurred in Jerusalem during the siege of the Babylonians. This siege resulted in the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the beginning of the exile of Judah. The story is recounted in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. In Jeremiah chapter 52, we learn that the city was besieged for nearly six months, and Jeremiah recounts that by the end of the siege, the famine became so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. The famine had become so intense that infants were not even given water, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths, and children had no food. The famine has also brought out the worst in the people, and they have become cruel, even, according to verse 3, more cruel than wild animals. The depth of this cruelty is revealed in verse 10, where we read that compassionate women have boiled their own children. The famine is so intense that the people have turned to cannibalism. The children the women should have been raising as the next generation are now literally consumed by them because of their ravishing hunger. And these are the compassionate women. Once again, the poet and prophet Jeremiah does not shy away from the reason for this suffering of the people of Israel. Just as he did in chapters 1 and 2, the poet declares that their suffering is from the Lord, and it is the result of his righteous anger. Verse 11 says it all. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and kindled the fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The suffering of the people is the wrath of God poured out on them. The extent of his wrath is comprehensive. As the poet continues his lament in chapter 4, he begins to reveal the cause of the Lord's anger toward his people and Jerusalem. In verses 11 through 16, we are given clues concerning the reason for God's wrath. In verse 13, we read, It was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous in the midst of her. What does this mean? It means that the leaders of the people have failed them. The cause of the Lord's wrath is the sin of the people. Make no mistake. They have not followed the law that God gave to them. However, Israel's leadership have failed to expose the sin and idolatry of the people. They allowed the people to become complacent, and now they are all suffering for their sins. The prophets and the priests, even the king, have failed in their task to guide the people in worship and in their lifestyle. The prophets and the priests should have been representing God and interceding for the people. The priests were the representatives of God, of the people before God in the temple. Their job was to be pure, to perform the sacrifices for the people in order to cleanse them of their sins. Their job couldn't have been simpler. 
They just had to follow the system that God had laid out for them. And yet they had become disobedient and followed the example not of Aaron and his sons, but rather of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These sons of Eli thought only for their own gain and desire, and they sated their unholy appetites on the sacrifices of the people. Additionally, in 2 Kings chapter 23, we learn that the priests at the time of the exile had become so estranged from their responsibilities that during the reign of King Josiah, we learn that Israel had not celebrated a Passover since the time of the judges. Since Saul had become their king, the Israelites had not celebrated their most foundational feast, remembering God's faithfulness and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. Not only had the priests not guided the people in celebrating the Passover for generations, in Lamentations 4, the poet brings the failure of the priests into sharp focus through a shockingly ironic reversal of roles. In verse 15 of Lamentations 4, the people recognize the sins of the priests and spurn them with cries of away and unclean. Such a dramatic turn is appalling. The priests have fallen away from their center in the Mosaic law. These cries of the people are the same cries the priests used to say to the people. Instead, the people, in an ironic turn, recognize the sins of the priests who selfishly only consider their own desires. And the people are angry The priests did not do their job, and now the people are guilty before God and are suffering the consequences of their actions, which the priests did not condemn. The prophets have led no better. In Lamentations chapter 2, the poet denounces the prophets for their false teaching. Verse 14 of chapter 2 reads, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen oracles for you that are false and misleading. The poets were to call the, the prophets were to call the people to recognize their sins and repent and turn back to the Lord. They were to uncompromisingly expose the iniquity of the people. However, the poet tells us that the prophets have done exactly the opposite. They have told the people what they want to hear. They have allowed complacency to become the norm. Such false and misleading teachings show the failure of the prophets. And finally, the king himself has failed in his post to rule justly and righteously, to protect his people and represent them to the nations. In the midst of the suffering of the famine and the Babylonian siege, the king and his soldiers do not stand with the people like a king should. On the, ca- on the contrary, when the famine is at its worst and hope seems gone, the king and his soldiers attempt to escape and run away by night. They don't make it far, though. In Jeremiah chapter 52, we read, The army of the Babylonians pursued the king, and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered, deserting him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and also killed all the officers of Judah at Riblah. Then, even more horrifically, Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's eyes put out, so that the last sight he would see is the death of his sons and his officers. Nebuchadnezzar then sends Zedekiah to Babylon to live out his days in prison. In the moment of his testing, Zedekiah commits self-centered and cowardly actions. He is God's anointed one to protect the people, and instead of thinking of his people, he thinks only of himself and brings the final wrath of God upon the city. Lamentations 4, 18-20 retell the pursuit of the Babylonians, at the end of the siege of Jerusalem from Jeremiah 52. 
The section concludes in verse 20 with, The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life, was taken in their pits, the one of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. This is a poetic description of the despair of the people when their king is taken into the prisons of Babylon. The image of living under a shadow is common throughout the Bible and reveals much about the expectations of what the reign of the Davidic king was supposed to be like. In the Psalms and the Prophets, the protection of God is represented as the shadow under his wings, and it is there that a person finds joy and refuge. Perhaps the most striking imagery of being under the shadow is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was shaped to be the mercy seat where the presence of God sat flanked by the cherubim, extending their wings upward and over to create a refuge from the weight of sin and shame. In Lamentations 4.20, employing this imagery of living under the shadow is, is heartbreaking because the people were supposed to rely on the king for protection and live under his shadow. But now the king has been taken and his children have been killed. The capture of Zedekiah and the murder of his sons is the final straw, the ultimate withdrawal of the Lord's favor. The prophets, the priests, and the king himself have failed the people. The people have continually turned from God and his commands, and the leaders have failed to expose their sin and call them back to covenant faithfulness. This is the reason for God's wrath and punishment that he has poured out on Jerusalem. Indeed, as the third section of the chapter opens at verse 17, it appears that the Lord's protection is gone. The perspective shifts to that of the people who say, our eyes have failed, ever watching vainly for help. They looked for help, but none came. The people find themselves in the depths of despair, for there is no end in sight. All the king's sons and the king himself have been killed by Nebuchadnezzar. What will happen of the Davidic line? The temple has been destroyed. How can the people worship God? The city is in rubble, and the people are being carried away to Babylon. How can they believe in the promise of their land? Lamentations 4 is an extended poem focusing on the failure of Israel's leaders and the resulting consequences. The leaders have an obligation to tell the truth. They have a divine calling from God to draw the eyes of the people to their own sinfulness and then help them to repent of that sinfulness and remain faithful to the law. But the leaders have not done this. Instead, they have told the people lies, like, you're doing fine, or God won't be angry if you bend to this one point, or idols aren't that bad. But now, in the midst of the outpouring of God's wrath, the realization has struck the people that their sins have caused this suffering and this judgment, and their prophets, their priests, and their king never called them out. And they're angry. They thought they were doing just fine. They never expected God's wrath because their leaders never told them that what they were doing was wrong. Now the people were going into exile because of their sins they had committed and the idolatry in which they had engaged. And they are angry and disillusioned with the leadership who should have prevented this. What is to be done? The people need a prophet, a priest, and a king who will not fail, but who will protect his children under the shadow of his wings, sacrifice with no thought to his own gain, and speak true prophecy, requiring honesty and humility of his hearers. Jesus fulfills all these rules perfectly. He is the righteous root of David, the rightful king. 
Rather than fleeing like Zedekiah in the face of danger and destruction, he walks into suffering with his people. Jesus did not desert his people, but his people deserted him. Even in the face of loneliness and desertion, he had no thought for himself and offered himself freely as the perfect priestly sacrifice. Unlike the priests in the order of Hophni and Phinehas, he did not take the advantage of his people through selfishness. Instead, he offered a holy and perfect sacrifice of his own body. Unlike the false prophets who thought only of their own gain, Jesus pulled no punches in his teaching. He demanded true repentance and full devotion that goes beyond verbal assent to active discipleship. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that the Israelites needed, a leader who would never consider himself over his people, who sacrificed himself out of love and mercy. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees a vision of Jesus as the lamb who was slain. In his glorification, Jesus is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is the leader we desperately needed because he gives of himself with no thought for himself. In contrast with Zedekiah and the false prophets and selfish priests, Jesus does not cower in the moment of trial or act in selfishness but rather he gives of himself in an act of apparent weakness, but which is actually true power. He deserves honor because he subjected himself to dishonor. He is righteous because he lives and dies for his people. Jesus is also the prophet, priest, and king that we require today. We are also the people of God, and we also make the same foolish mistakes the Israelites made. We put our trust in leaders who fail us and lead us astray. This misplaced trust in human leaders will always disappoint us. God warns of this danger in Jeremiah's other book. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make, flesh, and make mere flesh their strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. The people of Jerusalem looked for help, but none came. Jeremiah continues, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it does not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Here Jeremiah shows that the person is cursed who trusts in human leaders, and blessed who trusts in the Lord. When a person trusts in the Lord, there is no need for anxiety when the Babylonians come because we have a victorious leader who will not abandon and has shown us the way from death to life. Additionally, in Psalm 146, the psalmist says, Do not put your trust in princes and mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Again, God warns his people against trusting in human leaders. For in them, there is no help. Like the Israelites, we constantly fall back into the same misplaced trust. We trust in rocks. We have an unfailing leader, and we're fools to go back to mere mortals. Yet we do. For those whose hopes are steadily rising under the leadership of Joe Biden, I have news. He will fail you. But also, for those whose hopes are placed in the return of Donald Trump in 2024, I have news. He will also fail you. Parents will fail you. Friends will fail you. Jonathan Bish will fail you. 
We constantly turned to human leaders and placed our trust in them, only to be sorely disappointed once again. One of the most disturbing stories of the past year is the unveiling of the sin hiding behind the scenes in the life of Ravi Zacharias, one of the most prominent evangelical representatives in the world. It came to light shortly after his death last spring that Ravi had been using his platform as a spiritual leader to seduce and abuse women for well over a decade. I didn't go into detail for any person with a conscience to recoil in dismay at such a story. The revelation of the despicable depth to which even the most outwardly faithful Christian leader can fall should be a lesson to all of us. Human leaders will fail us. No person is immune to sin, none but Christ. There is no hope outside of Christ, his person, and his work. As one scholar says, as a lament and prayer, Lamentations 4 gives the people the chance to express hope. At the same time, this hope is embryonic. A fully restored relationship with God has hardly occurred at this point. We too live in the in-between when our hope has not been fully realized. But hope remains. We look forward with eager expectation to the revealing of the slain lamb in his glory. Then there will be an end to the suffering. There will be a king under whose shadow all the nations shall come and live. There will be a prophet who tells no lies, a priest who offers the only true and pure sacrifice. There will be one who shall drink of the cup of suffering, and in so doing remove the weight of iniquity from the people of Israel. The exile from the land will end, and the people will return. We do not hope in mortals. We hope in a prophet, priest, and king, who does not have righteous blood on his hands, or defiled garments. Rather, we hope in Christ, the Lamb, who gives his own righteous blood to wash away our sin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.